Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Several years ago, I was preaching by appointment in West Tennessee. And I'd never been to the church before, but I had directions. And following the directions, I drove down the highway for a number of miles turned off of the highway onto a blacktop road, drove on that a while and turned onto a gravel road. And then according to my directions, I turned on a road that was little more than a pathway. It was one of those places where car tracks had made a place, but the grass was still growing in the middle. Some of you have probably seen that. And I drove down that pathway for a while, and I came upon a clearing in the woods. And in the middle of that clearing, there was a little white frame church building. It was built up on concrete blocks so that you could look under it and see all the way to the other side. I think it leaned a little bit to the north. It had two doors, and I discovered in going in one of the doors that those doors were on either side of the pulpit. So if you went to that church and you were late, everybody in the church knew you were late. I was a little bit early, but there was an elderly gentleman already there. And in the middle of the room, there was a potbelly stove. And he had stoked that flame in the stove, and it had to have been 90 degrees in that little building that morning. The building probably would not have seated more than 75 people. And when everybody gathered, I think we had less than 30 there that morning. The singing, from our point of view, would not have been judged as good. I was doing the preaching, and so that wasn't good either. But as I've thought about that little church through the years, I've wondered where that fit in with what I want to talk with you about tonight. And I want to begin by reading a familiar passage from the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This letter is a letter about the church. 
It could be called an inspired portrait of the church. Because Paul says more about the church in this letter than he does any of his others. And in chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, he said this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church having neither spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Paul said that Christ established the church which is glorious. Our theme this week, as you know, no doubt by now, is based upon Luke 1 and verse 1, things most surely believed among us. And tonight I want to present what most of us in the churches of Christ believe the Bible teaches about the church. And I'm calling this lesson, Christ Built the Glorious Church. Think back to that little building I described. Where was any glory in that? A little white frame building elevated from the ground with a potbelly stove that leaned a little to the north. Not many people were there. And the worship service could not have been described as being particularly inspiring. Where was the glory? And this is how I want to answer. The glory is seen in the fact that that little group of people, the saved of God in that community, were the church that Jesus died for. And that is where the glory was. And that's where the glory is. Tonight, think with me about the church that Jesus built. And as we move through our study tonight, I hope that we will all focus upon what is being said because I think that in any day, in any climate, these things from Scripture are extremely important and they are things that we need to believe and that we need to see, especially in the climate that we have 
in the religious community and in the church today. Christ came and built his glorious church. The first thing I want to say about this is what makes it glorious? The church, the New Testament says, is the glorious church of the Lord. Where is the glory to be found? And I want to answer in this way. Number one, the church is glorious because of its origin. In Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, Paul said to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to his eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus. Now when Paul talks about the wisdom of God, he simply means the purpose and plan of God that at one time was covered but now is revealed in the revelation of his word. And notice that he says the church is to make known in the entire spiritual world that plan or purpose of God and that plan is according to his eternal purpose. Well, if God intends for the church to speak of his plan and purpose in the world and that's been in his mind from eternity, then the church is according to the eternal purpose of God. If a group of men in any given city wish to begin a bank, they would gather together, they would gather resources, they would be sure that they were meeting all the regulations of the government. And when they came together in a room somewhere, that's where the origin of the bank would take place. But the church of the living God did not begin, did not have its origin in a room somewhere. It had its origin in the mind of God. And that which comes from God is truly glorious. Number two, the church is glorious because of the price that was paid for her. This passage in Ephesians chapter 5 says Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Acts 20, 28 says he purchased the church with his own blood. It was at the cross that Christ paid for the church. We're going to see as we progress in our study tonight that people make up the church and therefore if Christ purchased the church with his blood that means that he has purchased us and the purchase price makes the church glorious. Number three, the church of the New Testament is glorious because of its foundation. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Christ is that rock of foundation. You remember in Caesarea Philippi, when Peter spoke for all the apostles and said, in answer to the question, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I say unto you that you are Peter, but upon this ledge of truth, upon this rock, I will build my church. The foundation of the church is none other than Jesus Christ. And yes, I am aware of the fact that in this letter to the Ephesians, we read which is a picture of the church. Paul says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And he's looking at the church from a little different point of view. But I want to say this. The only sense in which the church is built upon the apostles is the way they preach Christ and him crucified. Christ is the foundation of the church. And then fourth, the, the church is glorious because of her beginning. I love to pursue the beginning of the church because it begins in the New Testament era, but the prophets foretold her coming. And I want to say in the beginning of the church, number one, it was at the right place. In Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, the prophet speaking 750 years before the church would come into existence said that the house of God, now note the house of God, according to 1 Timothy three fifteen, the house of God is the church. And Isaiah said the house of God will be established in Jerusalem. And when one begins to read the New Testament and comes to the beginning point of the church, those who were waiting for the coming of the promise of God were in Jerusalem. They were at the right place. Number two, its beginning was at the right time. In Daniel 2 and verse 44 the prophet said that in the days of the Roman kings, the Lord God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Now, Bible students understand generally that the kingdom of God means the rule of God. Even in the Old Testament, God ruled in the kingdoms of men and God ruled in the lives of people who followed him. But the New Testament concept of the kingdom is the rule of God through Jesus Christ. God ruled before Christ came, but the New Testament concept is God's rule through Christ. Well, then, if that's the case, who is it that is ruled? And the answer is, any person who will submit to the authority and reign of Jesus Christ in their lives. On the other hand, there is the word church, and I'll come to that again in a little while. The word church is a compound word, ek, 
meaning out of, and kaleo, meaning to call, ecclesia. Somebody is called out, and the church becomes a reality. Who is called out? People are called out. People who submit to the reign of Christ's kingdom. People called out for Christ's church. Those two words refer to the same group of people. If we ask ourselves, well, how were they called out so that they could be ruled by Christ? Paul said in writing to the church at Thessalonica, he has called you by our gospel. So when people hear the gospel and respond to it in the proper way, they become the called out people of God. They become the church, those who are ruled by Christ, the kingdom. And Jesus used those two words interchangeably in Matthew 16, 18, and 19 when he said, I will build my church and I'll give to you, the apostles, the keys of the kingdom. Two different aspects of the people of God. The apostle Peter captures that in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 when he says he has called you out. There's the idea of ecclesia. He has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light who before were no people, but now are the people of God. That's a description of what the church is. And I'm submitting here tonight that when Daniel said in the days of the Roman kings, the Lord God is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. I would expect that to be fulfilled literally. So when we come to the New Testament and we begin to read, we may come to Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And Luke will say, in the days, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then he will go on to tell about the ministry of John, the forerunner of Christ, and then the coming of Christ, culminating in the church. But notice Luke said in the days of the Roman rulers, just like Daniel had predicted. The beginning of the church makes it glorious. It was at the right place. It was at the right time. And when we turn to Acts chapter 2, we will find that the church came into existence through the preaching of the gospel. The Apostle Peter's sermon is recorded in Acts 2. Like any good sermon, I suppose, his sermon has three points. First of all, in Acts 2 and verse 22, he said, Jesus of Nazareth is a man approved of God among you by the miracles and wonders and signs which he did and which you saw. He doesn't elaborate on the point. He just makes it. Jesus is who he claimed to be because you saw his miracles and you need to acknowledge him. His second point is found at verse 23. You took him and with wicked hands crucified and slew him. He died on a cross. Point number three begins at verse 24 and actually covers several verses because Paul, uh, Peter elaborates on this third point. He said God raised him from the dead. 
It is absolutely essential that Jesus Christ be raised from the dead. We're not here tonight seeking to honor a Christ who died, but a Christ who died and who lives again. Romans 1 verse 4 says that Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. If the lifeless body of Christ has crumbled into dust and ashes, buried in some unknown tomb in the land of Palestine, he is not the Son of God. But if he who died was buried in a borrowed tomb and on the third day life poured again into his body and he was raised from the dead and walked away from that tomb, no one can reasonably deny that he's the Son of God. And Peter uses the scriptures that those Jewish people who made up the audience would be familiar with to show that the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah would be raised. And he gives a quotation from David, the great king of Israel. A statement made a thousand years before Christ came. Found in Psalm 16, verse 10. David said, you will not leave my soul in Hades. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. David's talking about somebody who dies but does not remain in the tomb. And Peter's point was, David wasn't talking about himself. I've stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and I found it of interest that you can look from the Temple Mount across a deep valley and on the hill on the other side is the tomb of King David. And I just wonder if when Peter made this point, he says, David has died. And his tomb is still with us. It's right over there. He wasn't talking about himself, but he was talking about Jesus who died and was raised again. And he came to the conclusion of that part of the sermon when he said, God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, They were cut to the heart. That simply means that they believed every word that he said. They did not scoff. They did not turn away. They did not say, we don't believe. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's sermon led up to them asking the question of questions. What must I do? What shall we do? And following the preaching of Peter in presenting Christ, he announced to them what they should do. And so the beginning of the church involved people responding to the preached message. He told them in verse 38... Repent. He doesn't tell them to believe. They did that. They were cut to the heart. He says, repent. That means change your mind. Think of the goodness of God. That leads to repentance. Paul would say that in Romans 2 verse 4. In 2 Corinthians 7 at verse 10. 
The apostle said that in our relationship with God, that godly sorrow leads to repentance. That is, one who repents is impressed with the goodness of God, but he also knows that he has offended God. He knows that he has sinned. He knows that he's turned away and gone in the wrong direction. And now the goodness of God leads him to repentance. And sorrow toward God turns him because he's sorry that he's offended God. He said, repent, that's one thing. Then he said, and be baptized, that's another thing. And we know biblically that New Testament baptism was a burial in water. So he said, first of all, as believers, you need to repent. Second, you need to be baptized. And this is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Peter made that announcement, he was not drawing up a proposition for debate. He was simply announcing the will of God for our lives. As believers in Christ, we are to repent and we are to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to focus upon for the forgiveness of sins a moment. We find that same expression used in another place. In Matthew 26, in verse 28, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper just before he died. And he took the cup, the fruit of the vine, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which, my blood, which. He said, it is the new covenant in my blood, which my blood is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Same words in the Greek New Testament, same words in English. I want to tell you that I've asked over a hundred people a question I'm going to ask you tonight. When Jesus said that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, did he mean that his blood shed on the cross was being shed because people had already been forgiven or in order that they might be forgiven? Do you understand my question? And of those more than a hundred people that I've asked personally that question, I've only received one answer. Everybody gave the same answer. And they would say something like this. Of course, when Jesus said, my blood is shed for the forgiveness of sin, he didn't mean your sins have already been forgiven. He meant in order that your sins might be forgiven or the cross is not necessary. Everybody sees that. But we come to Acts 2 in our response to the cross. And we understand that we're to repent. And we can find all kinds of reasons that baptism is not a part of the forgiveness of sins. Though repentance and baptism come before the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2.38. So it is not repent and be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. But in order that your sins be forgiven. And he said you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
That day, there were 3,000 people who responded positively and affirmatively to that message. And they became the first members of the church that we read about in the New Testament. So then they obeyed the gospel. And then having obeyed the gospel, they continued. They continued in it. Acts 2 and verse 42 says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, in in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayer. And the Lord added day by day to their number, such as should be saved. The church is glorious because of the beginning. Now, number five. The church is glorious because of its nature. What is the church like? That's the nature of the church. First of all, let me return to the word ecclesia. Out of, called. Called out. Remember that Peter says, You have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light, who before were no people, but now the people of God. The nature of the church is, it is made up of the people of God. So let's just put that down. The church is not a physical building. The church is not made up of everybody that may claim to be religious. But the church is made up of those who are called by the gospel and respond in the proper way to it. Now the second answer I want to give to the nature, what the nature of the church is, we're going to find in that portrait of the church in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 3, Paul laid it down that the church is the body of Christ. There was a time when Christ had a physical body as he walked among men. He has a spiritual body in the world today and that spiritual body is the church. The church is the body of Christ. Now, there are a lot of implications into that, and we'll not go into all of them or each of them tonight except to say that the body means something. A body has a head, and that's Christ. A body has many members making up the body. That's the way the church is. Every member of the, the physical body doesn't have the same function. That's the way it is in the church so that the church can operate. But the church is a body. That tells us something of its nature. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul there will say that both Jew and Gentile may be reconciled unto God in that one body. Now, what is reconciliation? Why do I need to be reconciled? Well, I'm a sinner. And sin separates me from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 tells us that. 
So my greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Christ came and reached down to man and up to God and brought us together by the cross. And now we are reconciled to God in one body. If we're reconciled in one body, we're not reconciled out of one body. It's important that we know that. There are people for years who have been saying, I like Christ, but I don't like the church. I'll accept Christ, but I don't want anything to do with the church. To our shame, we probably have a lot to do with people not liking the church much by the way that we live our lives. But you can't have Christ without his body. And you can't be reconciled to God unless you're a part of that body. Reconciliation is in one body. And then coming down to verse 19 of Ephesians 2. Paul said you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. That's the nature of the church because if we're fellow citizens, then we're in the kingdom. And as I said earlier, that is in our response to Christ, we're saying you are our king and we are your servants and we will do what you bid us. This church where reconciliation is found is the kingdom of Christ. Then Paul continued, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And then he said, and of the household of God. The church is the family of God. Here again, there are a number of implications, but we can see readily that God is the father. Christ is the only begotten son of God, but he calls us his brethren. So we're a family and we're the family of God. He said, you now are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And a moment later, in Ephesians chapter 2, he said that we are the building of God. That we are the dwelling place of God. He isn't referring to a building made out of brick and stone. But he's referring to the church that is made up of living stones, is the way Peter puts it, you and me. And God has chosen to dwell in that building, that spiritual building. He has chosen to dwell in his people. And then in chapter 5, Paul announces that Christ gave himself for the church. And that the church is subject to Christ. And that Christ, watch it, that Christ is the Savior of the body. What is the body? The body is the church. What does Christ promise to save? The body. So people who want to be saved need to be among the saved, and that's in the body of Christ. Now that's something about the nature of the church. The last thing that I want to notice tonight about the church that Jesus built is its identity. Now we've been saying here all evening that the church is the body of Christ. I want to submit to you that a body 
has identity. You've seen the crime programs on television, no doubt. Somebody is murdered and maybe a family member or somebody that knew them is called down to the morgue to identify the body. The reason you can do that is because bodies have identity. I have a son. I doubt that anybody in this room has met my son. But if my son were coming into your city and at a certain place in your town, and I asked you to go and meet him, what would you need to know? You'd need to know what his identity is, wouldn't you? And if I told you that he is five feet, ten inches tall, you can eliminate every man who is taller or shorter than that. You've already eliminated every woman because I've told you he's my son. If I told you enough about him, you could go into a group of 10 or 100 or 1,000 people. If you had enough information, you could identify my son. Bodies have identity. When you came in the building tonight, you did not think for a moment that I was Adam or that he was me because bodies have identity. I don't mean to belabor that point, but we need to understand that a body has identity and the church is the body of Christ, therefore it has identity. What is the identity of the church? There are a number of ways that you can identify it. You can identify it first by its organization. Summarized in Philippians 1 verse 1, it had elders called bishops or shepherds, deacons, special servants, and the rest of the members. That's pretty simple. But that's what God gave, and he expected every fully developed congregation to have elders, deacons, and the rest of the members, and it works when it's practiced according to the will of God. Now, let's suppose that I'm going to start a church. It's mine, so I can organize it if I want to. I could make my wife the president of it, and I could be the vice president. And if I should do such a thing, I can guarantee you that it would be in that order. She'd be the president. But what I'm trying to impress upon each of us tonight is this. If I started a church and that's the way it was organized, it might be a church, but it would not be that church. You see that? The church has identity by its organization. Second, it is identified by what it's called. You know, you have a name. Now, strictly speaking, the church doesn't have a name like you and I do, but it does have terms in the New Testament by which it was called. What was it called? Sometimes it was just called the church because there was only one then. There are times when it's called the church of God, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. And that's appropriate because God purposed it and planned it. It came out from God. It's the church of God. In Romans 16, 16, it is called in putting together congregations, the churches of Christ. That's appropriate because it belongs to Christ. He gave himself for it. He purchased it with his blood. 
Now, since the New Testament doesn't call the church by any single term, we need not either except for identification purposes for us in a religious community. But here's the plea that I make everywhere I'm going. We've got to call the church something. Why not call it something the Bible calls it? If I started a church, I could call it by my name if I wanted to. And it would be a church, but it wouldn't be that one. The church of the New Testament is identified by how people became members of it. And in Acts chapter 2, on the beginning day of the church, we know that people who were members of it were penitent, baptized believers. That's how people became members of the church, the body of Christ. Number four, we can identify the church with the way it worshipped. And we don't have to be up in the air about how the first century church worshipped. We can learn it from various places in the New Testament. But Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians and described a complete worship assembly of the New Testament church from 1 Corinthians 10 through chapter 16. And we learn from those few chapters in the letter to the Corinthians that they took the Lord's Supper. As best we can tell, they took it upon every first day of the week. They took the Lord's Supper. Second, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians tells us that there was preaching, there was praying, and there was singing. Chapter 16 says that there was a contribution upon the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul spoke of when the church comes together. I take that to mean the assembly of the church on the first day of the week. That's what the church did. The New Testament and church history bears out the fact. That's what they did. If I started a church, I could do anything I wanted to. But I would do anything other than those five avenues outside of the authority of the New Testament. The church can be identified by its creed, that is, by what it taught. Creed means I believe. And what did it teach? It continued in the apostles' doctrine. Now, those are ways that that the church may be identified. Let's let's put up number five. What it taught, it, it taught the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to bring this together if I can, so bear with me just for a little while longer. You've been a very attentive and helpful crowd. In the New Testament, Jesus said that the time would come when there would be teachers who would not teach the truth. The apostles affirmed what Jesus said. And within about a hundred years after the close of the first century, that very departure began, had begun. And over a period of a few hundred years, people in religion and in the name of Christ changed every one of those identification marks. Every one of them. 
And it fell into what the historians call the dark ages. People left the Bible, the source of light. They were in the darkness. And in the 16th century, there were men in various parts of Europe who saw that there was something wrong with that. And therefore, they wanted to reform the religion of their day. Now, I'm glad for what the historians call the Reformation movement because they did some things that are worthwhile. But they are what I would call successful failures. They succeeded in that they gave the people the Bible. The Bible had been taken away from the ordinary people. They gave the Bible back in the language of the people. But they were failures because they had set out to reform darkness. And if you reform darkness, you have still darkness. And I want to suggest to you that out of the Reformation movement beginning in the 16th century, the major denominations that are in our communities and in our world today had their beginning. It was called the Protestant Reformation. And Protestant churches had their beginning then and there. Sometimes you may be asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? Protestants began in the 16th century, 1600 years after Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, as the Reformation expanded... There were certain ones first in Europe and then in America who said, here we are, we're wearing names you can't read in the New Testament. We're worshiping in ways that cannot be authorized by the New Testament. We need to be united religiously. We're divided into all these religious groups. So how can we get together? And they came to the conclusion, let's be united And let's have as the standard nothing but the Word of God. You can never unite on human opinion. So let's unite on the Word of God. And the method that we will use is restoration. Not reformation, but restoration. What they wanted to do was bypass the Protestant Reformation and denominationalism entirely. They wanted to bypass the dark ages of Roman Catholicism and they wanted to go back and they wanted to see what the New Testament church was like and they wanted to be that. And we're heirs of that kind of thinking. Now with this, I'm going to close tonight. Imagine a man who lives in the depths of China. He's never heard of Christianity. He's never heard the name of Christ. He's never seen a New Testament. But somebody gives him a New Testament in his language. He reads Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and comes to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He reads the book of Acts and he saw how people became Christians and we've talked about that here tonight and he does that. What did he become? 
He didn't become a part of Roman Catholicism because the New Testament doesn't, pre- doesn't present that. He didn't become a part of Protestant denominationalism because denominationalism isn't found in the New Testament. There's only one thing that he could have become, and that is he became a Christian. Now, let me take that one step further. Suppose this man that we're imagining now teaches his friends what he learned. And they become believers, and they follow the New Testament order of becoming a Christian. What do they become? They become Christians. Now, as together, they learn from other parts of the New Testament that they have come together into a body that is called the body of Christ. And they understand that God wants them to come together in regular meetings. And that the whole church is to be there. And they are to worship God according to the New Testament order. I'm asking, what church is that? And there's only one answer that could be given to that. It's the church of the New Testament. And I want to say to you tonight, beloved, that's all I ever want to be and that's all I ever intend to be. And if I do today what they did then, I will become what they became. I'll become a Christian and members of the New Testament church. What about you? Maybe you would like to answer that call to be Christians only and only members of Jesus' church, to be New Testament Christians, to seek to speak where the Bible speaks, to remain silent where the Bible is silent. We're here to help in your journey back to first century Christianity. And we invite you to come and become today what they became by doing what they did. And we've learned that here tonight. And the Lord himself will add you not to denominationalism, not to Catholicism, but he'll add you to his church. Let's stand and sing.